The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Yes. <laughs> Tonight is an MSK triple distilled episode. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with Stuart Brigham. Stuart, Hi, how, how you doing? doing? Doing great. Fantastic. I, f- I figured you seem excited tonight. so oddly restrained. Yeah, playful. I'm not sure how this is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, before you introduce our co-host and our, our guide for tonight through this MSK triple distilled episode, tell the audience, what do we do on the show and what will this episode be like? So we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We typically use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. For this episode, we reflect back on the experts that we talk to and distill down the clinical pearls into one streamlined, smooth, professional, flub-free episode um, where just all the high points, all killer, no filler. And this is put together and assembled by the amazing Molly Hoyblein, Dr. Molly Hoyblein, who'll be joining us tonight and guiding us through this topic uh, after she assembled what is a spectacular episode for us. So I will now turn the mic over to Molly to tell us about what we're going to be discussing. Thanks, Paul. You really set us up there. Uh, I'm not sure we'll be that smooth, but we'll try. Um, It's a huge topic, and we're going to cover a lot of pearls that I think will be really useful in primary care. Um, But I would definitely encourage going back to listen to these original episodes. I put together a few of these episodes and still am listening to them again more recently. There were tons that I had forgotten, though. Um, we will remind you about a lot of them tonight, but do go back and listen to the originals. If you go to the Curbsiders website, um, a shout out to Tima Karganoff. It's really easy to just search by topic. So you can just click on the MSK button and it'll show you all of our MSK uh, episodes. But tonight we're going to focus on knee pain, shoulder pain, hip pain, elbow pain, and osteoarthritis. One caveat is that we're going to be mostly focusing on subacute or non-traumatic cases. So I think we should in the future plan to do an episode on some of those more acute traumatic issues that we really haven't covered before. But these will be sort of typical walking into primary care situations. Um, We'll give you a simple framework for the top few diagnoses that will present the majority of time in primary care for each of these joints, the shoulder, elbow, knee, and hip. And if you follow these, you should get it right about 90% of the time. So let's get to it. Molly, I'm very excited that you chose this topic because as we were talking about in pre-recording, having reviewed this recently, I realized how much of this I shamefully have forgotten, but now remember. And I really, it's really been helpful to go back into the rooms when I'm seeing MSK complaints to feel confident. So where do you want to start us off with this when we're talking about the patient with pain, joint pain? Yeah, let's start out with a general case. Um, we'll start out with Christian. He's a 55-year-old healthy man with a BMI of 31. He's presenting complaining about joint pain that's been slowly getting worse over months, and he doesn't have any specific trauma. And so one thing that really struck me when I listened back to these episodes was that our orthopedist colleagues and our sports medicine colleagues really weren't as interested in getting a detailed history as we've been taught to generally in internal medicine. They were mostly focused on thinking about the patient's age, gender, and maybe comorbidities, and not so much about the quality of the pain or radiation of the pain or all those questions that we're taught to ask. So I think we can really simplify things, save time on our history, and just get to the point. Yeah. And this this is a guy, this uh, Christian, he's 55, and he has 
more of like months of pain. So it's subacute at least, probably more of a chronic pain. And I I like what you referenced. Uh, so we talked with Dr. Nyoji in episode 177, where we talked about osteoarthritis. And we were talking about some of the physiology, pathophysiology, and about like your pain receptors. And she said, at some point, patients go from peripheral, like somatic pain to more of a centralized pain. And Molly, like how how do you look for that in your practice when you're trying to figure out if is this like a centralized pain condition or not? Yeah, I think we in primary care are in a perfect place to look for that because, you know, if you go to a knee orthopedist, they're really just thinking about your knee. They're not thinking about you as a whole person. Whereas in primary care, we see our patients for lots of different complaints. And so you've you know, if you saw that patient two months ago for migraines and three months ago for irritable bowel syndrome and that they also have low back pain. Um, so you can really put it in a whole patient focused approach and know that if patients do have a lot of these chronic overlapping pain conditions, they're likely to be a more challenging situation and have more centralized pain going on. Yeah. And these are these are some of the yellow flags that you think about. I mean, before we get on to talking about yellow flags, the the centralized pain thing when we talked with Dr. Claw, Oof. which was way back on our fibromyalgia episodes, he basically said, the reason why someone with rheumatoid arthritis can also develop fibromyalgia is because once the pain's been there for years, decades, they can start to develop a central component where they're not going to really respond to your typical peripheral treatments, which could even include a surgery. So sometimes you want to make sure you're not trying to fix a centralized pain condition with a surgery. That's how you get uh unhappy customers in the long run and where, where it doesn't work because you're it's harder to fix that and you have to do other things to fix a centralized pain uh, component. So what are some of the yellow flags? There are, I think one recurring theme is I we'd like to think of at least joint pain as something easy because it's biomechanical. So it's just wear and tear on the cartilage gets bad and then the patient has pain. But I, I think something that has come up with each episode is the fact that it's much more complicated than that. So you're talking about the central versus um, peripheral pain, there's this idea of discordance yeah. between what we see on imaging and the patient's pain right. that they're experiencing that we talked about with Dr. Neoji. And then there's this idea of the yellow flags that I, I, I think you're going to get to in just a second. But even even things like the epicondylitis where Dr. Parks was like, actually, we don't know what's going on there. Or Dr. Neoji talks about it's not just cartilage. This is total joint failure as opposed to like heart failure or something else. So it's not, unfortunately, like everything else in medicine, that nothing is easier straightforward. And we don't fully understand how 90% of this stuff works or, or how to fix it a lot of the time. Too. And we don't really talk about the yellow flags very often um, in the in the clinic, but it's certainly something that we think about. And I don't know, I found that to be pretty helpful and useful too. Molly, did, did you want to tell us what those are? Yeah, sure. Um, so the yellow flags traditionally are applied to back pain, but I think they transfer very well to all painful conditions. And these would suggest that the patient may not follow as easy a course or may not respond as well to traditional mm -hmm. treatments. And these would be a negative attitude um, that the pain is harmful or potentially severely disabling. Uh, so kind of catastrophizing, fear avoidance behaviors and reduced activity levels, an expectation that passive rather than active treatment will be beneficial so that someone else needs to fix this problem for them rather than them making changes to fix it, and a tendency towards depression, low morale, and social withdrawal. So I yeah. think we can all think of lots of pain patients who have those issues and, and make it more challenging. Yeah, I, I think this actually applies to a lot of medical conditions, not just MSK. Yeah. With chronic pain, uh, whenever I, I talk about chronic pain to my patients or just to trainees, I always talk about like, you really want to give like a buffet of options 
um, and and just try to help the patient feel empowered that they can try a whole bunch of things to see to see what works. And I, I that can hopefully short circuit some of these yellow flags. But I'm sure you can all think of patients where they have like every yellow flag, and it's just like so you're it's such an uphill battle. So let's move on to the next section. We'll keep this in mind as we're talking through these conditions, knowing that it's not just going to purely be a mechanical issue that we're going to have to treat. Hey, Paul, I've, I've been wondering about this. I'm, I'm worried about you. How is your knowledge of geriatrics and palliative care? Because I, I know that this has to factor into your practice. I, I think you need some help. I, I wish we wouldn't frame it like that. Um, but <laughs> but I, I agree with you. I, you know, it's geriatrics in particular and palliative care is a substantial part of primary care, which is, of course, my, my lifeblood. But it's always something I feel like I do a little bit better in. And I have a feeling you're going to tell me about maybe a resource that could possibly help me do an even better job than I already do. Yeah, because I, I've been listening to the show by our friend, Dr. Eric Wadera, who's been on the show, and his good friend, Dr. Alex Smith. They are, they're both clinicians and professors of geriatrics and palliative care at UCSF, and they actually have a geriatrics and palliative care podcast, Paul. And do you know what it's called? I do, as a matter of fact. I believe you're <laughs> discussing Jerry Pals. That's right, Paul. Jerry Pal. So this is this of course is the Jerry Pal podcast and all jokes aside, Paul, when you have learning that you want to do on this on on geriatrics on palliative care like how to have difficult conversations, especially about like how to have conversations around the end of life, they do a great job of it and what I love about them and Paul, you know that when we when we started our podcast, Eric Wadera was one of the first people that we reached out to as a guest and Two years later, Paul, he was on the show, and that was that was uh, you know it was a highlight. He made so, the right choice to wait. We can admit that, right? But but Eric and Alex, they're very fun. They're very down to earth, and they can like make these really complex topics. First of all, they can make them usable to help you in your practice, but they also make it fun. And the recent episode that I just can't tell enough people to listen to, they talked about this new medication, aducanumab. They talked about amyloid and uh, some of the more advanced testing that's now being done for dementia. And that was just one of their great recent episodes, but they've done a ton of episodes. So I very highly encourage our audience to check that out. And Paul, why don't you tell them where they can hear that? So we're going to suggest to you that you listen and subscribe to Jerry Pell, which is a geriatrics and palliative care podcast for every healthcare professional by searching in your favorite podcast listening app. Just search for Jerry Pal. that's G-E-R-I-P-A-L, one word, in your favorite listening app to find it today. Episode transcriptions and links to the resources they discuss are available at jerrypal.org. That's G-E-R-I-P-A-L.org. And first up, just like a buffet, you gotta pick something to start with. So we need to talk about the knee joint, which was gloriously recorded at ACP in 2018 <laughs> with Dr. Ted Parks. So Molly, where do we go from wait, here? Wait, hold on one Christian? second. I'm sorry. What the buffet? I feel like I'm missing. <laughs> I liked I don't... that. I thought that was good. <laughs> what? Because he used the word buffet and it was so random. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. We're free So I was going to use it again. Okay. Do buffets still exist in the pandemic? I don't know if that's allowed. I mean. <laughs> Maybe in Texas. I encourage everybody, in Texas. get out to your local buffet. <laughs> All right. Sorry for derailing. I thought there was a pun right. there that I was missing. So please. I, nope, I nope, think it kind of nope. was. <laughs> well, the need. We need to talk about the need. No, that's, that's right. Sadly, I got it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So to clarify the case a little bit, Christian is our 55-year-old male with a BMI of 31, and he's actually complaining of knee pain. 
Uh, it's been going on for a couple months. He feels a little stiff. It's kind of diffuse around his knee, and it feels worse with exercise. On exam, he has some bony enlargement, a slightly limited flexion extension range of motion, but no laxity and no focal joint line tenderness to palpation. So Dr. Parks kind of uh, helped us think about the knee in four distinct buckets. Matt, do you want to jump into those? Yeah, and I was just thinking, we we really need to, by the time this is produced, I know we have some lag time between when we're recording and when this comes out, we definitely need to get some, uh, make a graphic for this, because I think this was before we were so heavy into infographics. I don't remember if we had one for the knee, but I think this really would lend itself to it. So Dr. Parks, he he did say, I, the first thing he always thinks about is if it's an emergency. So he said he he's really looking to to make sure that someone doesn't have a joint infection like a septic arthritis when he's thinking about the knee. And a lot of the times from the history, you can you can tell that. So somebody that has months of knee pain, it's non traumatic. You know, this this guy, th- this case is not sounding like this is somebody that where it's an emergency where we really have to like evaluate them in emergency department or something. So. If if it's a, not an emergency situation, you can think about these buckets as a ligament, a meniscus, it could be arthritis, a patellofemoral complaint, or none of the above, which is kind of a catch-all term. And uh, Molly, why don't you... I, I love the way that he talked about ligaments because it's it just like a, such a surgeon's way of talking about it. You want to remind the audience? But it definitely sticks in your head. Yeah. So he was describing the uh, ACL is about the thickness of your pinky finger. So it needs a lot of force to break. So just someone with a little trip on the sidewalk or, you know, they, I don't know, jostled their knee a little bit and that caused some pain. That's not going to create an ACL tear. And so you don't need to be too concerned about that. It really is something more like a skiing accident or a sports accident. Yeah. And he and he did say that uh, somebody with, we're not going to talk about the physical exam uh, too much on this, but he did say that's that's one that you can often pick up on exam. Like if someone truly did fully tear a ligament, you can, that's something you might be able to pick up on the exam. Yeah, and with the meniscal injury, um, I sometimes find this challenging because we think of young people with a meniscal tear as something that needs to be treated right away and that they do well with surgery and, and cleaning that up. Um, but someone who's older, it's really just part of the osteoarthritis progression. And so it's not as valuable to really diagnose a meniscal tear specifically. Um, but I can think of a few patients who are sort of in their 40s and so they're not young, but they're not old. And maybe they've had a meniscal tear in the past that was cleaned up and now they're, you know, convinced they have a new one. And I struggle with trying to convince them that this is really more of a chronic problem now and they maybe don't need surgery again. Um, but I don't think there's a clear line as to where that age cutoff happens. Molly, I find I do find meniscal tears or meniscal injuries difficult as well. I, I do think it's helpful to think that in the much older person that you're not really going to have to be as aggressive, especially about like you can probably try conservative things without sending them to surgery. But for the younger person, if you're trying to figure this out on the physical exam, he talked about the McMurray test, which he said he had done wrong for years. <laughs> and uh, so people can watch the video of the knee exam. I would recommend it. He, he shows us a 30 second knee exam on how to do that. But it's a bit of a, it's one of the, the things that you can look for is if the person has pain on f- like full flexion of the knee where they're really bending their knee as much as they can and they, they get pain on one side or one location, then that, that can be a sign of a meniscal tear. And then he said, if you have someone laying on their back with their legs initially just like straight out, and then they bring their knees, their heels towards their butt and kind of start to bend their knees, if they start to develop tenderness along the joint line in that, that's another sign that that could localize to a meniscal tear. But I, I think it's a 
something the younger people will probably send to surgery and the older people, you try conservative things. Paul, do you have any tricks for this? No, I was just thinking, I can't remember if this is the talk he goes at ACP or when he was talking to us, but this is one where I find the history actually is useful, at least for the acute tear. Like, I think he tells the story of the 50-year-old divorced dad who's just starting yoga for the first time and overextends and feels a pop and then the knee swells up. Like, he just, I feel like mechanistically I hear that one a, a lot more often. And then I, I tend yeah. to, we don't, we don't talk about this in the episode and maybe we can get this out even, but I actually prefer the Thessaly if the patient can tolerate it, um, which is where you actually have them bear weight on the affected knee and then lift up their opposite leg and then rotate on top of the knee to actually kind of recreate that grinding to catch the meniscus. If you recreate pain that way, it's, it's a positive test. Mechanically, it's much easier, but it's also a crueler thing to do to the patient. Yeah. That seems just like a violent I mean, that's how thing to put yeah, someone that's through. That's for coming to me. <laughs> I do that one typically. Then, uh, and, and most people tolerate it. I mean, the challenging thing is it is uncomfortable in patients with advanced osteoarthritis. And then, so it doesn't really help you in that kind of situation, but so what about the osteoarthritis bucket, well, Molly? Uh, can, can I just add something real quick? Yeah. Um, one thing that, that – so Dr. Parks is looking more for gross uh, uh, instability, um, significant knee injuries and pain. One of the things I find with my population that I take care of, which half, half the population I care for are younger, healthier individuals who come in for sprains and strains – um, one of the th things that's very helpful is actually just directly palpating the origin and insertion of the MCL tendon, which commonly is strained or sprained for these young individuals who are increasing their activity level um, when they weren't before. And we're seeing that a lot more with individuals who during the pandemic weren't as active and now they're finding themselves more active. So more like the pivot injury, but without an actual tear. Um, and I think that that's helpful, at least for our patient population, in identifying what the the potential etiology was, although the treatment's going to be the same for the most part when we get there. We've talked about two buckets, the ligament injury, the meniscus injury, and the next two big buckets are osteoarthritis and patellofemoral joint issues. Molly, for osteoarthritis, any specific things that you wanted to point out? I think for that one, we'll go into a little bit more detail about sort of treatment options and further evaluation options after we sort of wrap up the buckets, but uh, it tends to be chronic, often bilateral. Dr. Parks did a nice job describing that it, it is a chronic disease, but sometimes it can be exacerbated by like a small injury. And he kind of described mm -hmm. it as someone with a healthy knee can have a little trip and fall and, you know, walk it off, be fine. But if you're uh, you know, have pretty advanced osteoarthritis, but you're managing okay, a small fall can really push you over the edge um, so that those those more mild injuries can exacerbate things. And then finally, the patellofemoral joint issue is the other big bucket that's not a catch. Well, it's a little bit of a catch-all, but not. Not as much. <laughs> it's not the, none of the above. Yeah. Yeah. I actually hadn't really thought about patellofemoral osteoarthritis before re-listening to this episode. <laughs> no. Um, and I, I guess, you know, it makes sense, but it just wasn't on my radar. Right. So this is where he said you, you have the patient just sit on the table and put your hand on top of their kneecap and just have them flex and extend. And if you feel that Rice crispy stuff, that can be uh, and it's worse on the side that they have pain, then that can be a sign of the osteoarthritis. I can attest to that. Steward has patellofemoral <laughs> Oh, horribly. Oh, no. <laughs> and then for patellofemoral conditions in general, that's the one where it, it makes sense, he said biomechanically, that pain is most pronounced walking downstairs. And I tend to see this in a lot of younger younger people that are still more active. 
they get the pain when they're walking downstairs and uh, it's anterior knee pain. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like I see a ton of this and it's poorly localized and the patient sort of gestures vaguely at the front of their knee that that's where it hurts. Um, and then he mentioned the theater goer sign as well, where uh, worse after you sit for a period of time and then stand up and that's when you really experience the pain, which I, I feel like I just see a boatload of this in my own practice. Yeah. And so then the, the final bucket is is none of the above, which uh, Molly, do, do, what do you think is any of these are high yield that are particularly high yield for the audience? Or do you want to just kind of blow by this one? I think we can generally blow by it. I mean, you know, I sometimes see like a knee bursitis if you have localized sort of more external swelling rather than a, a joint effusion and pretty localized tenderness to palpation there. Um, IT band stuff we certainly see. Um, Stuart was mentioning some of the, you know, more ligamentous strains. So for the exam, I mean, at this point, you take the history, try to localize where the knee pain's coming from, figure out which bucket you think they're in out of the ones we've talked about. Uh, definitely watch the video where Dr. Parks teaches you how to do a 30-second knee exam. And once you've decided on the exam, you may want to get some imaging to follow that up. And there's really only three views that he wanted to talk about. And Molly, since you just mentioned the uh, patellofemoral stuff, there was one of the views that was particularly good for like patellofemoral OA, which yeah, uh, uh, that's the merchants. Want to talk or, about? Yeah, that's the merchants or sunrise or the subpatellar views. And I, I think his discussion of the X-rays was really helpful to me because I just order the one with the most views, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> three or four views sounds good. And then Who I get doesn't? the report back, and it's like exam limited by non-weight bearing and. Um, I, I think it's important to remember that most of those knee series are really made for the emergency room to rule out fracture. And so they're really good at ruling out fracture, but they're not as good at giving yeah. us the information that we're looking for if we're thinking about arthritis. So specifically asking for that merchant's view, which is sort of that subpatellar view, um, also getting standing AP views that are weight bearing. The other one was like a, a side view of a partially flexed knee. So the person's like kind of slightly knee slightly bent and their weight bearing and that you can imagine they can look at the posterior articular surface of the joint to see if there's cartilage loss there because he said sometimes it's it's not as common, but usually what we're used to seeing is like the knee from straight on and you look at both sides to see if, if there's that nice black space where the cartilage would be um, and see if it's asymmetrical. But uh, if that looks okay, but then you get the the partially flexed knee and look from the side, you might catch a uh, posterior like uh, osteoarthritis. So so just those three views. Uh, so make sure you, you probably got to free text it. And this is actually another reason, Paul, I don't know about you, but I've taken to just, if I'm sending someone to ortho, a lot they almost all of them get their own x-rays in the office. So I just don't even bother getting x-rays or I try to talk the patient out of it um, because I know they're going to get their own ones and they're going to get the right views because like Molly said, like the default views often don't work, but I, I it depends. I mean, obviously like everything, it depends, but I, I kind of like to see myself before I even send them to ortho. So I, it's, I oftentimes I will, or especially now that I, I think actually this is one of the, the major practice changing things after this episode is exactly what views I order. So I just get so excited right. to actually look at the x-ray. So maybe it's just selfishness, but I just, I, I also, I, I yeah. want to see the standing films. I want to see the merchants view and see if I can figure it out myself before I send them off. But your way is probably nicer to the patient. <laughs> Let's get back to the buffet, Molly, and talk about treatment here. Before that, can we jump back to the physical exam just for a second? Um, sure. I just wanted to highlight this recent JAMA review from February 2021 by Katz that was about osteoarthritis. And I, I thought it was very interesting that uh, they highlighted bony enlargement as one of the most 
significant physical exam findings that was suggestive of osteoarthritis in the knee um, with a likelihood ratio of 11. So much better than crevitus, which only had a likelihood ratio of two and uh, osteophytes that had um, on x-ray that had an, a likelihood ratio of 5.4. Um, I think so, it's a pretty late finding though, right? So kind of not yeah. surprising. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. But the, the crepitus isn't really all that helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. So now, now back to our buffet for Stuart. Uh, I know Stuart wanted me to talk more about buffets. What about the non-pharmacologic treatments for knee? I think the patient education is really important um, since most of our medical treatments really aren't that great. Uh, so really helping people understand that this often is a a slowly progressive disease, and many of them can do well for many, many years without really invasive treatments. And that self-management things like exercise and weight loss are really the primary mainstays of treatment. Paul, you want to shout out your your recent hotcakes? Oh, yeah. No, I, I should refer you to our almost certainly at this point award-winning show. Uh, our hotcakes episode was at 255, I believe, that actually looked at um, right a nice article that looked at comparing physical therapy versus intraarticular steroid injections. And, and both did well and actually decreased pain and increased functionality, but actually physical therapy did better and lasted longer uh, after one year. So PT, still kind of counterintuitively to me, um, seems to actually really help with arthritis, pain, and functionality. So it's, it's, always, it's always, almost always the right answer for any of these musculoskeletal complaints. Yeah. So just try to get your patients to explore a lot of these options and see what they, you know, see what kind of help they get. Because the pharmacologic options and and the injections, which we'll talk about next, I I still it's just so depressing how it's kind of like how poorly they all work. It's kind of like placebo. I mean, that's essentially right. what we're doing half the time. It seems. Yeah, yeah, I would. I just got right. so nihilistic about acetaminophen. Like my residents will be like, I think we'll try Tylenol. I'm like, why don't you just spit on the patient? Like, why don't you just do that instead? Like, what are we what are we even trying to accomplish here? <laughs> Molly, can you talk about the treatment options, topical yeah. versus oral NSAIDs, uh, yeah, and I whatever think if, else? You know, if we spend as much time with our patients talking about the education stuff and feel confident talking about it, it gives them gives the patients the sense that these self-care things are as important as the medications. And so if you spend most of your time talking about medications, the patients will think those are the most important. And unfortunately, as we said, they don't work. So acetaminophen, you could certainly try it, but it uh, doesn't work well. Um, the topical NSAIDs are probably a good choice. So like topical diclofenac, because they're so safe and they have pretty comparable effects to oral NSAIDs. Um, and it's nice that topical diclofenac, at least the gel, is available over the counter now. So should be readily available to patients. I was going to just point out, um, back to the non-pharmacologic thing, we... When, when we were talking about the pathophysiology, that this is total joint failure, I think probably part of the reason that like weight loss works is not just the mechanical offloading, but it's like there's a lot of metabolic benefits to the body from like improving diet and lifestyle. And that is probably overall making the joint more healthy. That's probably why these, uh, Paul loves talking about pleiotrophic effects, but I think that's why things that like, just like these, these simple things work because they they have effects that we just can't measure or can't replicate with just like making a single drug. And that's probably why these don't work. We also talked about the yellow flags, Molly. So do you ever use duloxetine for people with like joint complaints and how do you how do you select those out? Yeah, I, I definitely offer it to patients. Um, 
it doesn't work for a lot of people. So, you know, I offer it yeah. with that caveat that it's not something that we need to continue if it's not helping them. For patients that it works well for, you know, I, I think it's a pretty safe option for them to continue on. Yeah, I mean, it is FDA approved for low back and knee osteoarthritis and chronic musculoskeletal pain. Paul, you looked like you were going to say something. No, I, was trying I, to I, actually, I like it. Um, for, for, for select patients, I think we know we talked about the yellow flag. So if there is comorbid mood disorder, I think it's sort of a go-to choice for someone who also has chronic pain. And I, I've, I've had, yeah, I, I agree with Molly. Absolutely. There's, I've, it's not something I offer broadly, but I think there's a subset of patients for whom it actually is um, probably more effective than most of the stuff that we offer. So um, it just, you have to, it's like everything else. It's not a shotgun approach. You have to sort of be thoughtful to whom you offer what, but there are some patients I think that actually really benefit from duloxetine. And and for for the steroid injections, we we challenged all our guests about this. The fact that the trial data is just so grim. Uh, saline works as well in some cases, or lidocaine works as well, and we just don't really know how well these things work. Or I guess we do know how, know how well they work. Like people, I know that people <laughs> get them, and I know that they don't seem to work that well. But I, it seems like almost people are so desperate that they just want to do something. And when we went back to our placebo episode, like treatments that hurt more work better. So maybe right. that's part of it. hundred <laughs> uh, percent. But Dr. Parks did say he, he pretty much both with knee and hip tries the steroid injections, especially if someone's in a lot of acute pain. And uh, with the hip, which we'll talk about, he says he's trying to buy himself time because he says the hip technology is constantly improving and uh, they might get a better hip if they can wait an extra five years or something like that than they would have. So I don't know, Molly, Paul, Stuart, you, are you all using a lot of hip injections or knee injections rather? I, I don't know. I, I still do knee injections, but for select patients, um, realistically, uh, you know, if they've, if they report that they've received benefit from it before, then I'm, I'm willing to consider it for those patients who haven't received a knee injection. The understanding is that the knee injection is just a temporizing measure to get them to physical therapy. It's not something that I tell them is going to treat their pain. It just gonna is going to help temporize it. I've actually had a lot of steroid injections myself for shoulder and knee pain. I, at least for me, anecdotally, it helps to relieve the pain for about five to 10 days for me. And that helps me to get into physical therapy and do some of the mobility exercises that I need in order to prevent the pain from getting worse. And so that's kind of the way that I talk to my patients about it too. Some patients have longer term pain or benefit, but realistically, if they're doing the same mechanical activity that caused the pain in the first place, it's just going to come back. Yeah. Yeah. If the joint's totally gone at some point, they, right. they may just benefit from a joint replacement, but. All right. Yeah. I think that's where I'm, if they, if the patient, I'm, I'm trying to actually word this the other way around. So if, if treatment fails the patient, uh, the conservative management, the physical therapy, the medications that we have to offer, probably the next step for me would be the referral to orthopedic surgery, which realistically means they're probably getting a steroid injection before there's consideration for replacement. Right, and then right. I, I think it's sort of managed from them at that point forward, but it's not something I offer, especially out the gate. Right. And we talked about the hyaluronate, you know, hyaluronic acid agents and Dr. Dr. Parks really didn't, didn't love those. And he said that he, he often will not recommend them if a patient asks, it's, it's like a third or fourth line for him, but usually those patients are moving towards joint, uh, joint replacement surgery. Paul, as I've said before, I'm worried about you. How, <laughs> how are you sleeping? So many of these ad reads start with this context that you're worried about me. Which <laughs> just, is... just today, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sleeping great. 
Um, and, and so is my wife, thanks to the, the Birch mattress that we have. I, it's, it's funny that you mentioned this. We were just having this conversation today. My wife, uh, for those of you who don't know, is, is a, an actual athlete as opposed to me who just runs and, and then gets sore sometimes. So she has a lot of aches and pains, and then she's often just draped in all of our cats when she sleeps too. So before we got our, our Birch mattress, she was waking up, especially with just terrible hip pain. But lately, she says she's been sleeping better than she's ever slept before, um, which I, the only thing that is different is that we actually have this, this nice new mattress. How about you? How are you doing? I, I love the mattress. I think it's super comfortable. A quote from my wife, Paul, is that I feel like I'm sleeping on a cloud and she's always bragging about how well she's sleeping. Sadly, Paul, <laughs> you know, there's only so much you can do for someone who's neurotic like me uh, as far as sleep goes, but I am doing better. I feel I feel well when I'm sleeping. And as I said, I got a ton of points with my wife for getting this mattress because she loves it. So Birch mattresses, Paul, why don't you tell the audience just a little bit about them? So folks, we love them. Birch mattresses, they're made right here in the United States. They are made from just three materials sourced straight from Mother Nature, including organic latex, New Zealand wool, and American steel springs. So if you're looking for a new mattress, check out birchliving.com slash curb and see what they have to offer. They actually have a 25-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights, risk-free. They'll pick it up for you if you don't love it, but obviously you're going to love it as we've just told you. Birch is giving $200 off all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free eco-rest pillows from birchliving.com slash curb. Molly, you want to tell us about our, our, our next one? Actually, Stuart, do you want to transition us to our next? That's right. And because Dr. Ped, Ped Tarks, and because Dr. Ted Parks is truly too hip to be square, a reference Paul, he might get, actually. <laughs> next up, we have episode number 149, or as I like to remember it, hip, hip, hooray. All right. So I just think- Stuart frantically tapping into Google hip puns and then just seeing what comes back. <laughs> he was awfully quiet for a couple no, minutes. Today. No. <laughs> Huey Lewis, that's it? Uh, I guess I'll go with it. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Go ahead, Molly. All right. Well, our, our hip case will be significantly shorter than our knee case um, since luckily the hip is, is pretty straightforward for most conditions. Uh, so our next patient is Pele. He's a 60-year-old man who has three months of hip pain. So Dr. Parks had a really nice um, sort of bucket analogy for us again. So really just three steps, three buckets, and uh, helped us put it in a very easy framework. So step one, if the patient has groin pain, um, you want to check for a limited range of motion of the hip. So like kind of the windshield wiper test. If they do have pain and limited range of motion, that's consistent with hip osteoarthritis. And you would treat that pretty similarly to knee OA like we just went over. Uh, step two would be if the patient has lateral hip pain and you palpate over the greater trochanter and it's more tender than the other side, you can diagnose them with greater trochanteric pain syndrome. And step three, you want to rule out back pain. So that would be pain that's more in the um, buttock or more posterior. So on exam, Pelle has limited internal rotation and pain with the windshield wiper tests. We diagnose him with OA, talk about options like physical therapy for stretching and strengthening and pain relief medications. And if he fails conservative treatments, patients do very well with hip replacements. Can I make a couple comments about uh, just the exam things first? I, I I like how Dr. Parks and this I think this pretty much applies to all of the MSK. He said he likes to do he always do, examines both sides just to kind of compare because some of the maneuvers can be a little bit uncomfortable. So you want to make sure that it's more uncomfortable on the affected side. 
And uh, with this uh, windshield wiper test, that's the one where they just are sitting on the table with their legs dangling and you just kind of grab hold of their ankle and move side to side. And he said, you're basically like wringing the, the, the hip joint capsule like a rag. And if that's like filled with fluid and inflamed, it's going to hurt the person. And part of the way that he thinks the stretching works is just kind of improving their, their mobility in that joint capsule. So I thought that was all kind of very useful stuff mm. um, that, that he had to say on this, which was, and, and you can use that when you're talking to patients about it as well. All right, Molly. So after my wild tangent there, uh, where, where are we going next with the hip? Uh, so Dr. Parks talked us through thinking about x-rays for the hip, and it, it's really not required to get x-rays to diagnose osteoarthritis, but it can be helpful um, just to give us a little bit more information and sometimes to rule out sort of unusual things like avascular necrosis. And he recommends getting the AP pelvis, which compares both hips, which I was not doing. I was getting that like hip four view. Five view, ten view. <laughs> the fanciest um, one. <laughs> so I will try to start ordering the hip AP pelvis. Um, and I thought it tied back really nicely. Uh, what do you reference, Dr. Neogi's uh, tw- 2006 BMJ study earlier, where she talks about um, the osteoarthritis findings between different people on x-ray is really not reliable. So different people process pain differently or experience pain differently. And if you compare two hip x-rays from two different people, one could look terrible and the patient may have no pain, and one could look perfect and the patient does have quite a bit of pain. Um, so I think getting the AAP um, pelvis is really helpful because you can compare both sides. And her study showed that within a single person, arthritis findings at one joint, as compared to the contralateral side, are highly correlated with pain. So it can sort of give us that control like Matt was talking about for the physical exam. Yeah. And one of the great things about the AP film, when he was talking about it, he, he said, I get the AP film and then I just show the patient and, and I'm just like, this is the hip, that, you know, this, see this hip, it has this nice uh, crescent of black space there. That's healthy cartilage. This one is missing it. That's why you have pain in this hip. And he mentioned, uh, we, I, I already alluded to the hip surgery a little bit, but he mentioned that uh, the hip surgery has great outcomes and it's, it's a good surgery for if someone over 60 has a worn out hip, that's a good candidate for surgery under 50 years old, he said that that hip's not going to last their lifetime. The technology's just not there yet. And uh, that person's going to need another surgery. And they, they, they really try not to put a hip in to somebody under 50 years old. So that uh, he goes into a lot of detail about the, sur- the surgical management. If people want to go back and listen to that episode, it was, it was pretty interesting. Uh, Paul, Stewart, anything else with the hip? I, I, I just wanted to say that it drives me a little bonkers that every single patient comes into the office and says they have hip pain, and ninety nine percent of them have buttock have bursitis. Oh, oh bursitis! Yeah, yeah oh, buttock okay. or bursitis. Yeah, it's like it hurts on the outside of my hip. That's not your hip. <laughs> well, they're not going to come in and say I have greater trochanteric pain syndrome. <laughs> what a dream! Yeah, yeah, but but everyone thinks their hip yeah. is no, but I, don't know. Know. I, I think it's yeah. true. The low Anyways, back pain. Anything else? Like, well, it's my hip. Ball. And I'm like, no, it's your back. <laughs> yeah. Like, no. Nope. They just don't want their chief complaint to say, I have a pain in my butt. Right. That's, yeah. that's what they don't want to say. So It's a whole different let's... differential. All right, Stuart. Any fancy transitions for us? Yeah. Uh, so if you'd like to know more about how Dr. Ted Parks approaches joint pain, check out Practical Office Orthopedics. It's presently available on Amazon. <laughs> so last up, to round out our joints, let us help a tick... Let us help yeah, take a weight off your shoulders 
with episode. We, we have elbow. What? After after shoulder, right? Oh yeah, shoulders now. Well, we just did hip, so we're on Wait, shoulder, I... right? Yeah. Yeah, I've got shoulder. Yeah. All right, you you guys are okay, destroying my. Start again, <laughs> sir. Take here. it from right. practical off. Last up, if you'd like to know more about how Dr. Ted Parks approaches joint pain, check out Practical Office Orthopedics on Amazon. And last up, to round out our joints, let us help take a weight off your shoulders with episode number 124, affectionately titled the Well, they're going to get a bonus one because we are going to do elbow as well, but let's do shoulder first, Molly. All right. All right. So we got Danny. She's a 50-year-old woman with type 2 diabetes who's presenting with six months of shoulder pain. It's acutely worse in the past week after overdoing it with some weightlifting at the gym. Um, so Dr. Sendar talked us through sort of thinking about um, breaking down shoulder pain in terms of the patient's age and comorbidities. And so she highlights that a younger person under 40 is most likely to have tendonitis, whereas a middle-aged person is more likely to have rotator cuff disease or frozen shoulder. And frozen shoulder is especially common in diabetics and women. And then patients over 50 years old, atraumatic tears are quite common especially in those with a remote history of shoulder dislocation and people in their 80s and 90s are most likely to have glenohumeral arthritis. I, I wanted to just point out a couple other historical clues that I really thought was great. So she said, if somebody has pain reaching overhead, that's, that's like you're pretty standard for shoulder pain. It, it hurts when you reach over your head, but if it's actually relieved by reaching overhead or if they put their hand on top of their head and it's relieved, then that suggests it's more of a cervical issue. Because uh, as I was saying to her on the episode, that's something mm -hmm. that I've struggled with. Like, is this cervical or is this coming from the shoulder? So ask the patient if it gets better reaching overhead, it could be coming from their neck. And then the other one huh. she asked about is nocturnal pain. And it's not because that really helps her with the differential. It just helps her know how well the patient is doing. Because a lot of the times, if someone's really suffering with anything going on with their shoulder, they have trouble sleeping. And she's more likely to get that person an injection quickly um, and, and be more aggressive about treatment, trying to get their pain under control um, because of that reason. So uh, those are just two other pearls that I thought were, were really helpful. Molly, what about the buckets uh, with shoulder pain or how did she break this down? Because there's so many diagnoses, but she did make it a lot easier for us. Yeah, she has a very easy branch point. And so she focuses on the passive range of motion. And so if someone has a limited passive range of motion versus normal, that puts you in two different buckets. So to go back to our case, uh, we find out that Danny has a limited passive range of motion on abduction and external rotation. And um, so that kind of puts us in the adhesive capsulitis versus glenohumeral arthritis bucket, the patients with a limited range of motion. And in those patients, an x-ray can be helpful to evaluate, is there signs of osteoarthritis? And if the x-ray looks pretty normal, that would be most consistent with adhesive capsulitis. Yeah. In the passive range of motion test that she said, she's like, if I was seeing like 100 shoulders in a day, you know, which test would I do? She said she would have do the one where they just do external rotation, where they have kind of have their elbows hugged in against their their side with their their elbows bent at 90 degrees and you just rotate their, their arm, you externally rotate their arm. And if they have limited range of motion there, that, that kind of brings you into this bucket here. But this is a, I mean, OA, and I had the misperception that people would have an abnormal x-ray with frozen shoulder. And she said it should be pretty normal with frozen shoulder, hmm. which is something that I, I just did not know. Do you want to talk about the natural history of that, Molly? 
Yeah. The, the frozen shoulder as well. Yeah. Uh, the good news is that it gets better on its own and our treatments really are mostly aimed at pain relief. Um, they don't impact the natural course of the illness. The bad news is that it can take up to a year or two before it really resolves. Um, so classically, the patient will have about six to nine months of pain and then about six to nine months of painless stiffness and then about six to nine months of improvement back to full normal baseline. And Dr. Center um, gave us this pearl that it's very unlikely that adhesive capsulitis will occur again in the same joint, but they may develop it in the other shoulder. Yeah, I think that was her morbid joke to patients. She's like, well, the good news is it probably won't happen on the same side again, <laughs> which would not be that reassuring if you're in the middle of like an 18-month sentence <laughs> right there. But yeah, so pain greater than stiffness early, then stiffness greater than pain, and then and then it's the thawing phase where it, it slowly goes back to normal. All right, so if they're x-ray, so if they have ab abnormal passive range of motion, then and an abnormal x-ray, it's probably osteoarthritis. But if they have abnormal passive range of motion and normal x-ray, we think about frozen shoulder, especially if they have diabetes or they're an older woman. And uh, what about our patient here? Yeah. And just one other comment on the frozen shoulder. I think it's pretty interesting that we really don't know what causes it or what even it is, um, which I'm, I'm always amazed sure. in this day and age that <laughs> there are still medical conditions that we have names for and we can describe, but we actually pathophysiologically don't understand them at all which makes sense that we don't really have a treatment that works. Yeah, so the other uh, kind of branch point or bucket is that the passive range of motion is normal. And then you're dealing more with rotator cuff disease. And your main goal is to make sure that the patient doesn't have a full thickness rotator cuff tear, which would cause weakness. So if we re-examine Danny, and this time she actually has a full range of motion, then we're putting her in this other bucket of rotator cuff pathology, and we want to check for weakness. Are there certain and I think, yeah, I was going to say that the the case that uh, she, Dr. Center said, sometimes it's not quite as easy to figure out if their range of motion is limited because of pain or because of actual issues with range of motion. Paul, have you ever seen this happen, like where you're you're just not sure and and it they something changes all all the time. Yeah, it's, I, I think even with adhesive capsulitis, much in the case that we're explaining here, where someone is just very limited by pain and they're even fighting your passive range of motion because it just hurts them to have the arm higher. And it's not that it's even the range of motion, it's just you're causing that much discomfort. So I think just by a lot of the time in the exam, you're just kind of limited by the patient's pain. And for me, at least, I have a hard time differentiating between pain and weakness and, and range of motion issues um, because they're all kind of impact each other. So what she said is that if you give somebody uh, a steroid injection and bring them back in a couple of weeks, and now suddenly they have normal range of motion, then you realize this wasn't frozen shoulder because it wouldn't get better that quickly. So that means you're probably dealing with something like the rotator cuff, rotator cuff pathology. And those these are the other buckets. How did how do you break this down, Molly, based on our conversation with Dr. Center? Yeah. So if if I don't find any weakness on exam and they have normal range of motion, then it's consistent with impingement or partial uh, tear of a rotator cuff or tendonitis, um, which I think for our practices can be pretty interchangeable, although possibly there is some mechanical difference. Uh, we were kind of talking about this in pre-recording and Paul was still on the fence about if, if there was a difference or. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's a difference. I just don't think I understand what it is. I think that's probably the, the bigger issue. Or if it matters. You're right, you're right. Yeah. 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 I mean, her point was, I like the way she mentioned it. It was like, 
your job in primary care, if you're if you're dealing with this bucket of rotator cuff, is to seek and destroy full thickness tears. And we talked about the internal and external rotation lag tests, which are the ones that were from the the JAMA uh, rational exam series. Yeah. Which uh, they're they're very easy to do. So I, I highly recommend people try those. Um, you, we have video uh, showing you how to do these, or, or you can look them up. But they are you know, really you should do those tests on all your patients with rotator cuff pathology uh, to see if there's weakness. If there's not weakness, then those patients, they're probably going to be fine with physical therapy. You can try topical oral NSAIDs. Um, these patients, most of these patients are going to get better without anything, but if it's a full thickness tear, then you want to re- you want to repair it as soon as possible because it gets harder and harder to repair the older the tear gets and the ligament starts to retract um, back away from where the tendon starts to retract back away from where it's supposed to be. It makes it a harder surgery. Um, anything else about the shoulder that you wanted to point out, Molly? No, I think those buckets make it pretty easy and, and really uh, end up helping us differentiate most of what will come into the office. Yeah. So what was Danny's case, just since we, we, we gave a little more play to this case than the others? Uh, sure. So on exam, she had weakness on the Job's test and on the in- <clears throat> internal rotation lag test. And so we promptly diagnosed her with a full thickness tear and referred her to orthopedic surgery. Okay. Anything else, guys? Stuart, we're ready for a transition. Okay. So not to be outdone by the shoulder, we have yet another joint elbowing its way in with episode number 240, Elbow Pain, Straighten It Out, with Dr. Ted Parks. All right. Our final case here is Siv. She's a 42-year-old librarian who's complaining of elbow pain. On exam, she has tenderness over her lateral epicondyle and reproduced lateral elbow pain on resisted wrist dorsiflexion with her elbows extended. So we diagnose her with lateral epicondylitis. So Paul, I was I was bragging and pre-recording that since the elbow pain episode, this is something that I had almost no differential before. I was just like, get an X-ray, maybe there's a fracture, yeah. which didn't even make sense, like sure. a traumatic elbow pain. <laughs> Probably musculoskeletal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Doctor Parks, he makes everything so simple, and then and then he does a really great job of explaining it. But he basically said there's like three things we talked about, which was olecranon bursitis, the epicondylitis, either medial lateral, and then this radial head fracture. Uh, and if the person didn't have like a fall on an outstretched arm, then you're probably not going to be that worried about a radial head fracture. So it's probably either going to be epicondylitis or olecranon bursitis, one of which you can diagnose like from the door. So I was, I was bragging in, in pre-recording that now when someone has elbow pain, I like kick the door open to the (laughs) exam room. I'm like, let me see that thing. And, uh, I proceed to look at their elbow. And if, uh, there's no swollen olecranon bursa, then... I'm like, this better be olecranon, <laughs> this better be epicondylitis, or I have no idea what's going on with you. <laughs> so, uh, Molly, how do you, uh, did this change your practice? And like, uh, what, which exam maneuver are you doing for the epicondylitis? And tell us how you talk to patients about that. Yeah, it definitely changed my practice in that before the recording, I felt like I didn't know how to treat it. And after the recording, I felt better that no one knows how to treat it. So <laughs> uh, so I feel much better counseling patients that um, similar to the adhesive capsulitis, none of our treatments really affect long-term recovery. And this will get better just on its own. And the treatments are really focused on pain relief. Um, so if a patient wants something for pain relief, it's very reasonable to try all the things that we do for osteoarthritis, like topicals, NSAIDs, um, 
uh, physical therapy. And there's also for this one specifically some things like bracing, but none of these are going to affect the long term outcome. What about you, Paul? How, any any change the way you think about this one? Well, I, I think like you, he just really simplified the exam because otherwise my differential was both nothing and everything. And it was one of those things where like now that I had <laughs> three main diagnoses to parse through, it made it much easier. And Molly mentioned you mentioned bracing. Actually, one of the things that, that blew my mind, not that it's all that helpful, but he talked about how counterforce bracing works for epicondylitis and how it actually works like a guitar capo to prevent transmission of sounds mm-hmm. or vibrations um, up to the affected area, which just I because mechanistically it never made a whole lot of sense to me. It was one of those things that just you did for the illusion of motion. Um, but that to actually have a reason for how it might actually work, I thought was really cool. Yeah. And the way that the way that he recommended diagnosing this, uh, other than they just have pain on the medial or lateral epicondyle, is uh, they they hold their arms out kind of like Frankenstein in full extension, and you press down either you either press their hand into extension or you press from the top of their hand and press their hand down into uh, their wrist down into flexion. So basically, you either flex or extend the wrist against resistance with their with their elbows straight and if it, it the pain should map tested on both sides but the pain should map to the affected location and then the treatment is basically just stretching basically trying anything you can ice heat topical NSAIDs just don't really injections he said be be real careful with those but in, in general uh ice heat stretching and this should get better on its own How's yours and, coming uh, along, Stuart? Yeah, Stuart, I, I believe we yeah, diagnosed yeah, I was, you on air. I was, uh, I was checking it to see if it still hurts. No? I think we're good. <laughs> okay, Stuart's yeah. been cured. I think that means the show is probably uh, probably coming to an end here. I did, Unless, you Paul, mind, you have... Yeah, I, just, I want to touch on, and I want you to correct me also if I'm mistaken, but I think the other physical examination point that I thought was really neat was differentiating bursitis from a septic joint. He said that's the concept oh, yeah. he often gets, which I... And the way you sort of can quickly differentiate, though I guess this is not 100% sensitive or specific, but actually the septic joint is going to be extraordinarily inflamed and painful. And so it's not going to be, so the way that you would actually elicit pain with that is actually by testing pronation and supination. So you have the patient's arm by their side and have them pronate and supinate. And if that causes pain, it's almost certainly not a um, upper situs that is more likely to be a septic joint. So that's sort of one of the quick and uh, differentiating examination maneuvers he did, which I also thought was a really neat point too. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. I, I, I think that's very yeah. important. And it's like, it's, it's such a quick exam, like the knee, like the hip, he, he really didn't give us much. So for knee, for knee, he gives you a 30 second exam. You can watch the video on that for hip. It's like the windshield wiper test <laughs> and, and, or, and you press on their trochanter and then for the elbow, you just resist, uh, resist, uh, wrist extension, wrist flexion and uh, and then do the supination pronation. That, that's it. So it's very quick. Boils it down for us. All right. Uh, any anything else before we let the audience go, Molly? Take home points. Yeah. Well, you led very nicely into that. That um, common things are common, and the top few diagnoses. If you're confident about them and comfortable with them, um, if you sort of have a differential and it's kind of a bucket in your head for each joint it's pretty easy to take care of most musculoskeletal complaints in primary care. But I think also really important to have a follow-up plan. So this covers like 80, 90% of what we're going to see for common complaints. But there are those patients that fall through the cracks. And if someone's not responding in the way that we would expect with conservative treatments, it's always appropriate to have them referred on to a specialist and get further evaluation. Paul, the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy.
Thoughtful, pensive. I liked it. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice change knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And a special thanks to the producer for this episode, Molly Hoyblind, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs, Garb Taylor on Twitter, Maddie Maddog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganoff on the website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've still been Stuart Kent Brigham. And I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblind. A reminder that this and most episodes What about are... the names? What about the oh, names? Oh. Uh... Midsummer. Do you want me to just shame uh, Paul? Is that my yeah, goal? Yeah. Let's just, let's just <laughs> no, the public no. shaming. Mo- <laughs> Molly, I, I didn't get the names in this episode. Can you... Ex- what, what are those from? Yeah. Have you seen this amazing movie called Midsommar? I have not. Um, I don't have the stomach uh, for that. It's beautiful. It's painful, but it's beautiful. So you can go back I- and listen to... If you listen to the original episodes, you will hear Paul's take on Midsommar. And were you talking about it with Dr. Niyogi? I think you guys were... We're getting oh, into yeah, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. She didn't... I think she doesn't like horror movies and she didn't realize what she was getting yes. herself into. <laughs> it starts out so peaceful and beautiful and then you're like, whoa. <laughs> but I would highly recommend it. All right, so... <laughs> being uh, the, the names of our, our cases are actually taken from Midsummer is why we're talking about that right now in the outro, correct? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for Yeah, why? Was that just a, a random... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was a random hanging times. thread. Well... A reminder to our audience that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org through our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. And we should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>